0: SS, speak like a native, practice with feedback, study, get creative. W, woke, period, consciously be aware of what you're saying. A, accents matter, stress and expression, romance, swagger. G, grammar check, conjugate the verbs, use the right verb tense. A Tengo un secreto, escúchame bien por un rato. Guess what, when you speak Spanish, it's not English, it's Spanish. Soul, sprinkle that swag, stop walking around posting like, yeah, you may llamo. Dude, you sound ridiculous. Your ignorance is not conspicuous Ay, I'm speaking from experience Not a guru striving for excellence Been speaking at Espanol Desde el colegio ay. No mas monolingue Spanish web drip Yo soy bilingue And you can do it too Apply the Spanish ay, swag ay, You'll see ay, you through Ay, es, este Speak like a native Practice with feedback Study, get creative W, woke Period, consciously Be aware of what you saying Ay, accents matter Stress and expression Romance, swagger G, grammar check, conjugate the verbs, use the right verb, sense. Hey, hola, 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 everybody, hola, everybody, ¿cómo están? Espero se encuentran
1: bien. Hope all is well. Yo me llamo Jessie Feliz. My name is Jessie Feliz, and I'm the host. Yo soy la presentadora de Spanish swag. Boop, ballin'. Guess what, everybody? Hoy tenemos un invitado bien especial. We have a special guest all the way from the other side of the pond, And I'm so happy to have Señor Joe Dell, the Modern Foreign Languages and Technology Consultant from the UK. Round of applause.
2: Hi, Jesse. It's amazing to be here. I love that introduction. I think that's the most dynamic introduction I've ever heard on a podcast. Either one I've appeared on, or one that I've listened to—that was fantastic. Great stuff for uh, language teachers everywhere to get you uh, hyped up for this podcast episode.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. E gracias a usted. Thank you so much for taking the time out. I know we have una diferencia de cinco horas—a five-hour difference between Eastern Standard Time—and let me know what is it called. I'm so used to Eastern, Central, Western, Pacific. I mean, not Western Pacific Time. What is it called in the UK? Is it GMT or?
2: Yeah, so now it's GMT, which is Greenwich Mean Time. And then before the end of October, it was British Summer Time or BST. I always get confused. <laughs> Whenever I'm planning um, webinars, I always find it uh, it can be a bit of a nightmare in, rela- in relation to working out the exact timings based on what time the webinar is on. So I'm, I use a Chrome extension, Timely. It's completely free. And it just allows you to put in obvious time zones like Eastern, for example, and it just allows you to compare what time it would be in the uk wherever you may be with that particular time zone so it does mean that you can make sure that you do attend when you're supposed to for the time zone in question. So yeah, it's absolutely fantastic Chrome extension for that particular niche job that you need to do.
1: Because everyone doesn't honor daylight savings time. And in some countries, I've been told that Mexico is moving forward. They're not going to go back and forth based off the time of year, the daylight savings time. America Central, Central America does not do it at all. So I'm used to either being two hours difference and then all of a sudden I'm a one hour difference. With my friends and close loved ones in Costa Rica. So, you know, it's really important for us to have these chrome extensions as needed so we can all still stay communicated, you know, in connection and on time, right? Absolutely. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so Joe, before we get started learning un poquito más de ti, a little bit more about you. I have to always ask this question to people who have un dialecto, a dialect that's different from mine, or you know, especially speaking with English, because like when I lived in the Costa Rica, I lived in the Sur Caribe, El Caribe Sur, which is the South Caribbean. So we have a lot of people of Jamaican descent who are nationally Costa Ricans, but their grandparents came over in the 40s and 50s to build the ferrocarril, the railroad. And so they speak Patois, they speak Spanish, they speak English. And then here I come from the Midwest, from Detroit, Michigan, Detroit. And I have my own lecto, my own way of speaking English based off my microcosm, where I'm from. But I've also lived in Baltimore, or we say Baltimore with a T, but everyone from Baltimore pronounces it with a D. You know, so I absolutely love dialects in addition to learning about languages. So my question for you is, for us, I would say for the majority of us, como estadounidenses, as U.S. citizens, I don't even want to say Americans because Americas, we have many parts of this continent. But every time I hear someone who is British speaking, there's this level of hello. You know, like I feel very even my formal voice. When I'm teaching people about usted, when you gotta use usted form, you wanna speak formally. I always switch it and it's this formal manner. So we're being totally hashtag transparent. When you hear my black American Detroit Midwestern, but lived in other various places voice. Do I sound American? That's really what I'm trying to ask. Do I sound where I'm from? That's what I want to know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You sound where you're from. You sound very, um, you know, dynamic, as I said at the beginning, and full of energy, which is fantastic. But I, I think as a result of global TV and the way in which we can now, certainly in the UK, for years and years and years, we've been up to watch lots and lots of US uh, programs, um, hearing different US accents. It seemed very, very normal. And I think also now with... Um, technology and streaming software like StreamYard we're using this evening. It's not a strange thing, I think, to be talking live with people from uh, from different countries. So, yes, yeah, you sound absolutely lovely, Jesse. You sound very authentic from where you are.
1: Oh, thank you, darling.
2: If you just said your accent without saying the exact place in America where you were, I think I probably would have struggled with that. But you sound very American, whatever that means.
1: Okay. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm from. But I can also change. You know what I love about languages? We have like these official languages. But your, I had a Spanish professor that talked about your idiolecto which is your individualized lecto. And I love that because if you are born in one place and for the majority of your life, that is your domicile, that is your microcosm, then you share that regional dialecto, that regional dialect. However, if you have lived, not just traveled abroad for a short term or vacation, but if you have resided, like you were a resident elsewhere for a long period of time, your ears naturally become acclimated to sounding near native of that area. And so now you're bringing that along. And then if you move elsewhere, if you're this this nomad, then you, know, you acquire different accents and it's so rich. And I love it. I absolutely love hearing people speak different languages, but even the variety of lectos within the English language. I absolutely love it so much. And I saw a video, forgive me, I cannot remember who it was, But it was a British citizen and he was going over the variety of British accents. And, you know, from us on this side of the pond, you know, there may be this standard, what we perceive is like, oh, this British accent. And, I mean, I wonder, like, obviously for people of England, is there like this standard American sound or do we consider, oh, this person's from New York or... This person's from the South and they talk a little country just idea right here. You know?
2: I think there are stereotypes, for example, of a New York accent. Like, you know, um, grab me a coffee and all this sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, coffee and cream. Coffee and cream.
2: Which again, would have come from TV shows and films and what yes. have you. But yeah, absolutely. Going back to what you were saying, I mean, in the UK, you can drive just like a few miles and you might find that not only are the accents very different, but words that people use about um, different objects can be very different. For example... From time to time, you see these things on Twitter, like um, people will post a photo of something and say, how do you describe this? And so, for example, one that comes up a lot is um, what I would call a bread roll. That's because I come from the south of England, but in other parts of the country, particularly um, in the north, northern parts of the country, then there's a whole range of different terms to describe what I would call a bread roll, such as a batch and a cob and things like that. And it's absolutely fascinating. Another one, which is another nice one as well, is when you see, for example, a little path that goes between houses. Now, some people would describe that as a path, but there's a really lovely northern expression, which is a ginnel, which is one of my favorite words, which is G-I-N-N-E-L, which you'd never hear in the south of England. But in, um, in the north, in some parts of the north, you would describe that as a ginnel. In relation to foreign languages, I was lucky enough to be a student in Montpellier in France, which obviously has quite a particular accent when they speak French there. And while I was there, I also went to other places like um, Avignon and Nîmes and uh, Perpignan, which has a particularly um, marked uh, accent, and Marseille as well, which also does. So definitely my French was influenced by that. And then after my degree, I um, lived in French-speaking Canada for two years, and the Québécois accent is very different again. So from that point of view, I remember people at the time saying, oh, you sound, you know, really... uh, French-Canadian or there are certain words that you say which make you sound very French-Canadian but they also I remember one person in particular said there were certain words you say that betray you which I just thought was really lovely you know that idea of betraying the fact that you're not a French native speaker that you're saying certain words which obviously sound as if you are Anglophone as they as they say in um, Canada you're an English speaker so um but that was Such a a wonderful opportunity, not only to be in Montpellier for a year and then also to be in French-speaking Canada to improve my spoken French, because my degree was in French linguistics. And I absolutely loved traveling and meeting people and all the benefits you get from doing that, not only linguistically, but culturally and, and so on and so forth.
1: Love it. So, Joe, in the UK, is it a requirement? Is it part of compulsory school where you have to study a second language? And if so, where does it begin? Does it start this day kindergarten or is it more of an elective course or how is it? Because I'm, I'm interested to learn more. I know we talked a little bit through Twitter, but I'm interested to know. And everyone, you have to follow Joe at on Twitter, arroba Joe Dale, J O E D A L E. Follow him on Twitter, por favor. But tell us a little bit about the requirements for foreign language or second language learning.
2: Okay, so at primary level, back in 2014, languages were made compulsory for Key Stage 2, which is 7-year-olds to 11-year-olds. So that was fantastic. That was something that people have been fighting for for many, many years. And then at Key Stage 3, which is 11 to 14-year-olds, languages are compulsory for the whole of Key Stage 3. But the way that things have changed in the education system in England in particular Is we now have these things called academies, which are well over 50% of all schools. It's probably more like 70% now. And they don't have to follow the national curriculum, they can do their own thing. So, for example, you would expect in all secondary schools, even if they're academies, that um, students would study a language in year seven and year eight. So that would be 11 to say 13 year olds. But there are some. Academies that are not offering languages in year nine, which is when they're sort of thirteen, 14 years old, which obviously I'm very anti that idea, but that's um, that's the way that it works. So it's supposed to be compulsory at primary level, but unfortunately, there are still some primary schools which are not offering languages. In other words, they are flouting the um, the government um, advice on this. And because Ofsted, which is the inspectorate that go into schools at primary, secondary, etc. level, They do do these um, inspections on languages in particular or even what they call deep dives, which is when they go into into look at a particular subject, be it primary or at secondary, and they really do a deep analysis on how that particular subject is being taught. Even though there have been some deep dives in languages at primary level, there hasn't been the same focus, I think, in recent years, even though languages have been obligatory. So it's almost as if the government are seemingly turning a blind eye to some schools who are not putting in place statutory lessons or maybe they're they're ticking that box by having maybe an after-school club, which was never the idea. The idea was to have curriculum time for languages and not really just half an hour a week, but really, you know, ideally say at least an hour a week. In my middle school, when I was teaching on the Isle of Wight, we had... At Key Stage 3, we had two lessons of 50 minutes for the Year 7s and Year 8s, so the 11 to 12 and 12 to 13-year-olds. And then at Key Stage 2, the Year five and Year 6s, they had one lesson a week of 50 minutes. And that allowed for really nice progression, I think, from when they came into Year 5 right up until they left us and then went on to the, um, the high school. But then, again, the school system on the Isle of Wight has changed, They've got rid of the middle schools, which has been the case for lots of areas in the um, in the UK, even though wow. I still think they're fantastic from a from the point of view of um, the children's development. I think that they it allows them to extend their childhood a little bit longer, which I think is a lovely thing. But yet yeah, it, it changed in 2011 and it went from a three-tier system to a two-tier system. So my former colleagues who were teaching primary age children went to the primary schools in 2010 and then the the teachers who were going to secondary in 2011, they all carried on with the same students from the year six, year seven to year eights. So they just all carried on to the local high schools. And so now since 2011, it's been primary and secondary. So it's quite interesting the way things have changed. But personally, I loved teaching in the middle school. I love teaching the primary age students and the secondary age students. And now I've been for the last 13 years or so I've been an independent languages consultant, you know, traveling around doing training either face to face, but as a result of the pandemic, I've been doing most of my work via webinars and via online training.
1: I love that and I am a middle school teacher at heart. I taught most of my time in public schools at the middle school level. However, in the during for the last like 4 or 5 years, I've been teaching elementary students and I absolutely love that. And I think it relates to I have two young children, so It just all works in tandem. Interesting enough, I would like to know, dig a little bit deeper about world language instruction in England. So, and compare it with some stereotypical observations, I'll say, that I have of second language instruction here in the US. Well, historically, aquí en los Estados Unidos, here in the US, there's been like a, a large like what's plagued this nation, one of the things that's plagued this nation is this anti-multilingual mentality. And I understand with colonization, wanting to have English as a primary language, but I love the concept of developing your ears where you can acostumbrarse, get accustomed to speaking near native versus assimilating because you start to lose your identity. So we have many people whose ancestors come from Europe and they ethnically identify with being Italian-American, for example, or they may be Irish-American, even though it's still English, you know, or they may be from a country. Their great-grandparents or great-great-great-grandparents, now as time moves on, has come there. My ancestors were enforced to migrate through the African diaspora. It wasn't like, hey, Please put me over there. No, this was not a choice. So that's a whole nother topic of how languages were stripped and taken away. But even for people who can trace back specifically what country they come from or their ancestors come from, you know, it still was this English only, you know, and there was discrimination if you didn't have a certain type of English, right? Um, Let alone socioeconomic factors. And so now you have Second generation children being born of people who have more recently migrated, and you have this do I keep teaching my children and reinforcing the native language of our heritage, or do I want them to sound American enough? You know, so that impacts world language instruction, whether it's from the funding or the rigor, the expectation, and I have such a strong passion for equipping my people with el bilinguismo with bilingualism, because I'm saying over 50% of the world is bilingual and multilingual. You know, like that's like the norm. But here, I mean, in some communities, it's like just to convince people of the importance, let alone to equip the teachers and to put qualified educators, not just because they have a degree, but who can actually speak the language you know, so that we can actually set our children up for success. So I don't know in comparing that with the UK, like, is there like an anti uh, or has there been historically or do you see, I know you said a lot of the parents in the community, they were pushing to have languages be a requirement early on. But so does that then reflect that there's less of this anti, you know, the English only mentality in England?
2: Well, I think having traveled here, there and everywhere or around the world, I think that language teachers are sort of fighting their corner making it very clear to students of the power and the importance of language learning. So when I've been to places like Australia, to the States, here and everywhere, I feel that language teachers are always showing this sense of solidarity and and fighting the good fight, as it were, about the importance of language learning. In relation to the UK in particular, I suppose the elephant in the room is uh, Brexit. And I think the influence that Brexit has, has had on potentially some attitudes of students and possibly their parents as well thinking, well, why do we need to learn the language now because we've left the European Union? Linguists or people who are very pro-languages would say the opposite, that we need to improve our understanding of languages in order to be able to converse with people from around Europe now that these ties are not as strong, which is a huge regret that I have personally. And I know lots of language teachers feel exactly the same way. So I think language teachers have always found themselves in the situation whereby they have to, if you like, persuade lots of young people on the importance of languages. I think that it can be a hard sell in lots of ways. I think that languages, certainly in the UK, and there's been lots of reports about this from the British Council and other organisations about young people seeing languages as being difficult or hard, or that they'll get grades which are not as good in languages compared to in other subjects because of the whole debate around severe grading, that the the government could have addressed in the latest GCSE, so the exam that you take at so the age of 16 in the UK, they could have addressed this idea that lots of people have been talking about for many years, the fact that you won't necessarily get as good a mark because of the way that the marks are set in a language compared to other subjects, and that obviously seems very unfair. So for example, let's say you were doing subjects like, uh, you know, English or, or geography or history, according to the data that has been put together over many years, in a language you will probably get at least one grade lower than other traditional subjects. Wow. And there have been, as I said, there have been people like Helen Myers, who is a friend of mine, who's the chair of the London branch of the Association of Language Learning, along with her husband, David Blow, who'd been campaigning for this for many, many years. And we feel this would make a big difference to the attitudes of young people in relation to languages if they felt they were on a level playing field. Yes, So that's definitely happened. So I think before Brexit, there was still absolutely the argument of, you know, what's the point of learning languages and parents saying literally at parents' evenings, well, I was never good at languages. <laughs> Uh, Therefore, why should my son or daughter bother or parents who have children with special educational needs saying, well, I think that they need to focus on English rather than on the foreign language. All these different barriers that you can find are a challenge. But I think that as long as you make sure as a language teacher that your lessons are exciting and interesting and engaging and relevant, then you can buck the trend on that and you can uh, enthuse students on the power of languages. And I think that as a result of social media, in particular the MFL Twitterati community, which I've helped to to nurture over many years, there are lots of excellent practitioners who are sharing their knowledge on a daily basis. And of course, for lots of teachers, it's really changed their life, being able to read about different ideas, sharing different resources, sharing the latest government initiatives or For example, today the government has announced that they're going to spend £15 million on a new centre of excellence and they're going to create these new hubs as well and they're going to put out a tender for, it could be multi-academy trusts or different organisations to bid for that tender and then once that tender has been approved and there's a new centre of excellence, then maybe that will see a difference in the the way in which languages are taught in england as well so there's lots of change happening all the time but i think that through social media in particular which is one of the of the vehicles that i use a lot for keeping up to date with everything i think that's a fantastic positive environment to help keep everyone up to date with what the government have been doing or ofsted the the inspection team have been doing and their latest initiatives but more importantly Practical ideas that you can try out with your students quickly and easily, which can have a, a fantastic motivating factor with them. But with with the exam changes that we've seen recently with the new GCSE, etc., I think having a community like that is amazing for keeping up to date. And I'm sure it's exactly the same with Lang Chat in the states as well. And um, I just think it's a wonderful thing. So there is that reluctance. There always has been that reluctance. But and I think that Brexit hasn't made things easier. Let's say. But I think that with positive, dynamic, committed teachers, we can certainly buck that trend and improve things as they are.
1: Now, that last part, the dynamic and committed teachers. One of, well, I filed the trademark for Spanish SWAG. It's an actual acronym that really is about empowering and equipping students with this consciousness to be aware of what we're saying so that you don't, and I don't know in England if you all have this equivalent, but aquí en los Estados, here in the U.S., and people laugh about it. It's almost cliche for someone to say, Yeah, I took Spanish in high school, Quiero dos burritos. And it's almost like, I don't understand. Like, we almost like boast about our ignorance. That's why my song, I say, Your ignorance is not conspicuous. You sound ridiculous. Or my daughter would say, Redonkulous. You know, and it's almost, there's almost this level of like boasting in the ignorance. And I cannot be mad at now adults that are doing this and they've gotten A's or received A's and B's in their language classes. And I was just doing a professional development recently here in Detroit with some teachers. And I said, I know I've been the person, you know, you have to call the kids up, you're asking them a question. And so if I ask them, ¿qué te gusta hacer los fines de semana? What do you like to do on the weekends? And if a student responds and says, ¿me gusta ir al parque con amigos? That is an American gringo accent like I do not know what. Now, technically, es una frase completa. That is a complete sentence. Oh, the child's using a vocabulary. And I'm not trying to walk around and be the grammar police, but no one in Mexico, ni in España, ni Venezuela, ni Cuba says, me gusta ir. But I'm saying as an educator, I have to say, no, it's me gusta ir. Because my thing is, I'm not just trying to be your elective teacher. I'm giving you a skill set that literally can impact your trajectory academically, professionally, cross-culturally, your future GPS opportunities, and just being a good human. Understanding and showing respect because it's someone else's language that you are even trying, you know, attempting. So is that a stigma in the UK? Have you met students? I know sometimes it can come from parenting, maybe not valuing, or the school structure-wise, but that's very common. Like on Saturday Night Live, there's always sketches where they're talking about people sounding like this and everyone knows this. Or someone, oh yeah, Quiro dos burritos, por favor. And it's like, huh? Have you heard that? Is that a thing that happens in England where people are butchering the language and that's just like the norm?
2: Yeah, I mean, the cliche is as long as you can say uh, dos te betas, por favor, then um, you're, you're fine when you go on a holiday. But I, I think there's a couple of answers to that. I think from the student's point of view, Maybe because they don't want to appear silly in front of their peers, they don't want to seem as if they're not fluent in the language, that's why they will deliberately pronounce things with a bad accent or an English accent, let's say, when they're trying to speak in the target language. And I think that maybe, I may be wrong about this, but my understanding is in the States, because there are so many Spanish speakers, I would imagine that most people are going to be exposed to different Spanish accents much more than you maybe would get in the UK so from that point of view that can be a great way I think of tuning your ear. certainly when I was living in Quebec and the students who were learning French who were maybe had a relative that could speak French or were more exposed to hearing French their accents were much better whereas if you live in an environment and I appreciate that you have access to media what have you now which makes it a lot easier but generally speaking, to try and recreate this sort of French-speaking or Spanish-speaking or German-speaking or what have you capsule in the classroom, then that's, that's a challenge. But I, I think, hand on heart, that trying to use the target language as much as possible in the classroom is absolutely the way to go. That's what I used to do a lot. I used to try to speak as much as possible in the target language because of the fact that the children would acquire so much without necessarily realising it. And I know I was just saying about, say, at parents' evenings, when you might get some parents who have got you know bad attitudes to uh, language learning, you may also get lots of parents who say, well. I wish now I had learned properly a language at school because I regret that now because I'm missing out on opportunities or when I go on holiday and I feel very embarrassed that I don't know how to speak a second language. And in lots and lots of countries, this is the absolute norm that people can speak one, two, three, four languages. But I think things are changing from the point of view that we have so much access now to resources in the target language. So from a teaching point of view, it's amazing if we're looking for authentic text, whereas 20 years ago, that just wasn't the case at all. So...
1: <laughs> no, um, it was not.
2: <laughs> so I think in lots of ways, we're in a lucky position now, even though we're still struggling with changing the attitudes of some students or some parents, I think.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I got to ask this question or bring this topic up. I'm more recently, I haven't seen, I'm on the last episode, but it's been, work has been so busy. I haven't seen this so long. Battle. One of my now favorite shows, minus the violence, which is kind of hard because when people are fighting, I just always look the other way. But The Last Kingdom, it was first on BBC Network and then it was acquired by Netflix. But what I love the most from the show, and I know it's based on some historical occurrences, but it's still a drama, right? Realistic fiction. I did not know this. I was never taught this, even though it makes sense now, from what I- American lack of knowledge about British history, the whole concept of United Kingdom is interwoven throughout this show because it's showing that on the aisle there were these independent kingdoms and that the leaders of West Como se llama? Wesley? No, Wesley. Wesley. Westminster. Westminster, I'm sorry. <laughs> wanting to it's like Wesley, that's not right. I know Mercia is not called Mercia anymore. I don't know what the modern... I'm watching the show from the 800s. So they have some of the older names. But still it's this concept of you had these individual kingdoms. And so now you have United Kingdom. And I don't know why I never made that connection with the concept of United States. Even though they weren't necessarily like kingdoms in the same regard. But similarly now it's this United, at least geographically or United nationally. Even if not United on beliefs or customs and practices. But I just find that really interesting. Is that accurate what I understand now, that the purpose of calling it United Kingdom is because there were historically different kingdoms on the same aisle, but now became one country for England, one England, and then I know we have Ireland and that involved as well. Is that what I understand? Is that Educate me, please.
2: Okay, so obviously the United Kingdom is the term that we use for the home countries of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. So that's referred to as the United Kingdom, whereas the British Isles don't include Northern Ireland. I think I'm right in saying that, but Great Britain does. But when you say the British Isles, that is just England, Scotland, and Wales. I hope I got that right. Otherwise, I'll, I'll feel the wrath of people. But um, oh, <laughs> but yeah, geographically, countries dun, are very dun, you know dun. near each other. But I think from a cultural point of view, I think. Um, Scottish people are certainly politically are much more to the left compared to England which tends to be in lots of England anyway is more to the right although if one believes all the polls recently that if there was a general election that the um, the current government would would lose the vast majority of their seats um, I believe it when I see it but in Wales as well I would say most people are to the the left and so with the whole Brexit issue which Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland voted against, voted Remain, it now has created this vacuum or this issue around the fact that there are lots of people in these different countries who feel very strongly that we should never have left the European Union and that we're being constantly lied to as a result of Brexit because of the fact that the government don't want to admit to this this huge mistake they've made because that would politically be very difficult for them. But I think we're going to have to come to a point whereby it's going to be so obvious that our economy is in decline and so on and so forth that they will have to do something. But um, I think that having been many times to Scotland and to Wales and to um, Northern Ireland and to Southern Ireland as well, that people's attitudes are completely different in general. And I love going to those places. And as I said, I love travelling in general. But I think politically, possibly to do with with social media or the the idea of polarisation, that Brexit has been such a, a thorn in the side of British people that I don't really know how we're going to get out of it, to be honest with you. I don't know how the UK is being seen by people in the States. Having spoken to lots of European teachers, I've been doing these courses in Dublin recently and meeting with lots of teachers from literally all over Europe they just think that the English are crazy for doing this the English in particular as opposed to British people I think it's really the English people who've really or Westminster the Westminster bubble as one says who have been able to persuade all these people to vote to Brexit in 2016 and then we've we've had um, the consequences of that when it's actually happened I think that um, they all think that we're completely crazy and I, I agree with them I don't know why we made this mad decision but we have done and we have to live with the consequences and that's why if you are let's say an entrepreneur or or someone who's a you know a creative it's just immediately cut off a lot of your opportunities that you could in the past that say just jump on a plane and go to a country and do in Europe and and do some training but obviously for trade those businesses that were based on just in time delivery have had huge problems the scottish um Fishing industry, for example, have had huge problems and lots of those voted for for Brexit. And then the farmers having to compete with the uh, New Zealand lamb, for example, because of the fact that the British decided to do a trade deal with you. New- it's just a complete and utter mess. I know we're sort of going off languages a bit, but it's just interesting to see how things have changed. And I'm sure that will affect attitudes about other people and other languages moving forward. So I just think it's been a huge disaster, to be honest with you.
1: Mm. Well, you know, when it comes to, I'm a firm believer that language is a reflection of the culture of the people who speak that language natively and or through heritage, right? And so when things happen politically, you know, there's, that impacts also language too, because it impacts the people, it impacts the culture. And so, you know, a hundred years from now, there may be a shift in the lecto that may be a result of this exit, you know, from the European Union. You never know how that plays and how that can impact the world and specifically the British Isles. Another quick question I have for you is in England specifically, do people, because okay, here in the U.S., you know, we think of like, oh, you're from the Midwest or you're from the East Coast or you're from down South. And while that's not just your geographic, we talked about it's your dialect. It also relates to like your almost like your subculture, sub in the sense of this national culture, even though it's your microcosm. So it really is your culture. Southern hospitality is a real thing. I lived in Texas for un año and everyone, regardless of people's political status, everyone says, yes, ma'am. I mean, and I was like, ma'am, and this one's younger, I'm not somebody's mammy, but like, it's just the norm. Even just culture, like, and that's language. Like, yes, ma'am. I remember my daughter that she was two one and a half, we moved, we lived in Costa Rica and then I moved back to the U.S. when she was one and a half. And I never forget, like, she was coming home and she would say, yes, ma'am, to me. And it threw me off because I'm in the Midwest. We don't say, yes, ma'am, you know, but that's culturally within that region, right? That dialect, even though we're all speaking English in England. I know you said, like, you were from the south of England or like, do people resonate? Like, even though you're British, do people, like say, oh I'm from the South of England, like is it that same where people are really like oh I'm from I know people say New York, but the East Coast or oh, I'm from the West Coast. I'm from you know people are very regionally proud of their origins. Is it the same thing
2: absolutely, yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean everyone is is proud of where they come from. I normally find particularly when people travel, they think very fond thoughts and are very proud of their homeland, as it were, even more so when they're they're traveling and maybe they're comparing. What life is like in the in the place they're going to on on holiday for example compared to what life is at home but yeah absolutely the place that you grow up in it's incredibly important for your for your well-being and what feels normal and in relation to expressions for example um in parts of the the north of england people will say um hiya duck as it were which might seem a bit odd to to other people but it just is a term of a dim and it's just like saying um Hi there, sweetie, or whatever it might be, the the equivalent, and I just find it fascinating.
1: Is that considered informal or formal? Does it matter the context?
2: Oh, that would be quite informal. But you might go into a shop, for example, and buy something, and and someone might call you love or dark, depending on where you are in the country. And I I think that's really lovely. Um, as I say. When I travel to different parts of um, of the UK, yeah, you get different attitudes. Generally speaking, that you know the cliche is that people in the north are more friendly and more willing to have a chat with you. If you, I don't know if you've ever been to London, but it tends to be that everyone is not as forthcoming with, with speaking to you. Or certainly on the um, on the underground, if you actually have a conversation with someone, they'll probably think you're a complete weirdo. So everyone's like looking at their feet or or listening to um, their phone or, um, you know, doing something else or what have you, but not having a conversation. Whereas when I've been to other parts of, uh, of the UK, it can be the complete opposite. So <laughs> it is fascinating. And I think also in relation to accents as well, which I ask um, whenever I meet people, let's say the European teacher I was mentioning in Dublin who tend to be English teachers, I ask them about how do they find the Dublin accent or how do they find the accent in places like um, Liverpool or Newcastle or Glasgow? and it's always really interesting to hear their take and and what they think and and expressions that they've learned or you know colloquialisms and this sort of thing it's it's fascinating that's one of the beautiful things about language i think the fact that it is very much context dependent and the fact that you, yeah, you tend to be very proud of the place where you've grown up, but it's also fascinating to travel and to visit other places and to learn the expressions that people use in, in other places around your local area, as well as further afield.
1: I love it. I love it. And it, it's a beautiful thing. Okay, I'm going to spell a word. I know we have to end pretty soon, but I want to spell a word because from the Midwest, I pronounce this word a certain way. When I first taught in 2008 in Baltimore, a lot of East Coast people from New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, as well as from Baltimore would pronounce this simple word a different way. But I lived in Baltimore for six years. So now I pronounce this word that way. I don't know why. And then sometimes I don't, but I guess when I'm getting hype, I feel more. I don't know. I'm just going to spell this word and I want to hear how you pronounce it. I know there's a way according to the Webster or the Oxford Dictionary, but it's a simple word and we use it frequently. I just want to hear how you pronounce it so I can compare Midwest versus East Coast and see where it came from. Okay. The word is D-I-R-E-C-T-O-R.
2: Right. D-I-R-E-C-T-O-R.
1: It could O-R. be a school director. blank. Say it again. Director.
2: I would say. Okay. Director. Yeah. So how would you pronounce it?
1: I would say from Detroit, I would say director because we say directions. Even though it's an I, we say dir. East Coast director. I had a parent come one time and I was like, I had hall duty and I was up front and this was like fresh out of college. Okay, Jessica, you have hall duty. And I'm like, in Baltimore, like, okay. And this parent came and the door, we have to keep the doors locked, obviously. But I don't know if I was just distracted, but my back was kind of like towards the front door and no one in the office was responding to her. So this parent was banging on the door. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I run to the door and she said, uh, teacher, where's the school director? Director. And I was like, um, the school director der versus die. I need to know. Direct me where the director, die and director. So I just find those little things very interesting. I pick those up all the time. I love it. Language is a reflection of culture. Culture is a reflection of your origin. And like you said, it's a beautiful thing. And then studying other languages and other cultures, to me, really just strengthens your own identity because you're able to make connections that you cannot make in isolation whether it's cultural or linguistic.
2: And it feels as if you're almost playing a role, isn't it? When you're yes. speaking the target language in a different language, then it feels like you're playing a role. And that can be very liberating, I think, as well. It is. J- just in relation to, uh, you know, words being pronounced in different ways. I mean, obviously, you've got the classic um, aluminium, whereas in the States, we w- pronounce aluminium or oregano or oregano or you know there are many examples like that or vehicle or vehicle for example
1: oh how do you pronounce a-g-a-i-n
2: a-g-a-i-n again okay again you could say again I suppose but I would normally say again
1: it it gives me like these small little nuances too sometimes it's not like again versus again and so also the way we pronounce certain words Imagine for someone who's learning English as a second language or a third or fourth language, you know, and then it's like British standard English versus American standard English. And so it's like, well, wait a minute. Oftentimes words are written a certain way. And the English, what I find is really interesting. It's not like derived directly like Frances or Espanol from Latin, right? It's not like one straight mother language that it came from. It's una mezcla de lenguajes diferentes. And so you'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that sprinkling on there. And so it can be like, ah, I always tell people we have five vowels in English, A-E-I-O-U, but they produce up to 20 different sounds. Whereas in Espanol, I don't know how it is in Frances, it's A-E-I-O-U. A is not a, eh, it's only a. It will not change. And so for me, I find it also liberating even linguistically and even with syntax and everything because to me, for learning a romance language, such as Spanish or Francais, like the beauty of it is like, okay, we have these vowels and this is what really drives the language. And so if you've committed these vowels, and of course, there's other linguistic items to learn as well, but I just find that, I find that very liberating because I can read Same problema. Like, and it's all good to read. It's easier for me learning versus even simple things. My daughter, she's in second grade and she'll say, mommy why is bear, B-E-A-R, hair is H-A-I-R, and care is C-A-R-E? And I'm like, well, silent friend E for care, hair like the air, you know, it's just like random. It's not like this solid rule, but it's a beautiful thing nonetheless, because that's what makes the English language what it is, you know? And so it really is like our sight words, you don't necessarily meet sight words. I don't know in French if they stress sight words. In Spanish, you really don't stress sight words because once you learn the phonetics, you should be able to read all the words.
2: Yeah, I think the the thing about Spanish that, um, I mean, I learned Spanish personally as a a child a long time ago now, but I learned it for six years. And we were always told that one of the great things about Spanish, exactly what you just said, is that if you know how to pronounce the different um, letters, then phonetically, it'll be fine. You'll you should be fine with your pronunciation, whereas with French and certainly with English, as you say, you know you might get the same word but just pronounced completely differently or words which have one letter difference which are pronounced completely differently as well. So that is the beauty of language and the fact that we do have the opportunity now to listen to different languages on, on YouTube, on television, on radio, on podcasts, we can be exposed to these different languages very, very easily now whereas in the past that just wasn't the case. I know you could listen to the radio, but it wasn't necessarily at the appropriate level or the appropriate age, let's say, whereas now there's nothing stopping us really if we want to be exposed to to different languages. So, But personally, that's something which I love about language, the way in which you can have different words pronounced in different ways. But of course, as a person learning that language, that can be difficult. But um, as I said, with uh, with Spanish, my understanding is that if you know how to understand the phonics of Spanish, that it should be straightforward. But that doesn't necessarily make learning Spanish easier than, let's say, French, because of the fact that you're using the subjunctive a lot sooner in Spanish compared to, let's say, in other subjects. So I always think it's dangerous to have a hierarchy of languages to say one is better or easier than another one. But certainly in the UK, Traditionally, French has always been the most taught language, but in the past, it was always German was the second most taught language, whereas in recent years, it's definitely now Spanish. And there are some schools that offer don't offer French, only offer Spanish or Spanish and German as opposed to French and German, which is always the case. So wow. there's definitely a huge interest now in, um, in the learning of Spanish in the UK. That said, there are lots of German teachers who are absolutely fighting their corner for the importance of German as well so it's just fascinating you know I mean to me the most important thing is that people are passionate about their subject, about the language it doesn't matter which language it is as long as we work together as a community that's what it's all about personally.
1: Yes oh I love it so much okay La cosa, last thing I always like to play this game so I want to play it with you it'll be real quick I will say a phrase very basic phrase in a different language and I want you to Joe, you have to guess what language am I speaking or what part of the earth if you don't know the specific language. But this should be easy. This should be fun. Okay, first one. I know you're going to get this one. Bonjour.
2: So that's French, obviously.
1: And mi chiamo Jessica. Mi chiamo.
2: So that's Italian.
1: Eso. Okay, total different part of the world. Nina Furaha Kukutana na wewe.
2: Um Nina Furaha Kukutana
1: nawewe.
2: I don't know, but maybe that sounds like a bit like Maori, maybe from New Zealand. No.
1: Um Jambo, Nina Furaha Kukutana nawewe. I'm Mimi ni Jessica.
2: Is it a South American language?
1: It's the Africa.
2: Ah, okay. Okay. Nina
1: Furaha Kukutana nawewe.
2: I'm not sure. You have to tell me. I'm sorry. I don't know. Swahili. Swahili, there Which we are. Okay.
1: Interesting enough, Swahili uses the same vowels. And spanish. Okay. So it's really I'm learning swahili right now. Konnichiwa.
2: That's um Japanese.
1: Versus ni hao ma,
2: which is Chinese, mandarin chinese. Yeah.
1: Muy we'll bien. Oh, I hope I don't mispronounce this one. Jindobra.
2: Jindobra. Um, Dobreba. Is that Russian?
1: Close, but not Russian.
2: Uh Polish?
1: Ah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That was
2: a, a, oh. a bit of a guess. Okay.
1: Okay, you give me one.
2: Okay. Um now you put me on. The, you put me on the spot. Just for everyone listening to this, this was not pre-prepared. We're doing this live. <laughs> it was
1: not planned. I'm always thinking
2: one. So I'm just trying to think. Um, okay, here we go. Are you ready? Here we go. Okay. Borodar.
1: Repítate, por favor. Borodar. Ni idea. I have no idea.
2: Okay, that's Welsh. Or well, it's supposed to be Welsh. So I I taught in Wales for two years, and that's where I did my teacher training. So I lived in Wales for three years in total. And I didn't learn a lot of Welsh, but I remember Borodar. I remember Saw as well, which means "you're welcome." So there we are. That's I'm limited. I'm very limited in that way. But um, that was a great, challenging uh, test. Great idea.
1: Well, I'm totally limited because I could not even I could not even picture where this was spoken. I was like, "Oh, it's such a beautiful thing." But I'm so thankful, everyone. You have to follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Dale. He is amazing. Very insightful connect with him he's like doing amazing work especially with modern language with consulting in the uk and abroad since we can communicate and connect virtually as well as well as he's very well versed on a lot of tech tools that you can utilize to augment your instruction and podcasting as well i'm learning so much from him joe thank you so much Thank you for spending this time with me and have a wonderful
2: day. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jesse. I must say we haven't talked about technology hardly at all. We've had a great chat about language awareness and language teaching in the UK and in the US. It's been really fascinating. So thank you ever so much for the opportunity and uh, can't wait to hear the, um, the final outcome. Great stuff.
1: Thank you, Joe. Ciao.